Elizabeth Karcher is the executive director of the President Wilson House in Washington, D.C., a site owned and managed by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. As the executive director, Elizabeth manages the strategy and operations of this historic house and museum. The site's current focus is on the themes of African American history, women's history, and Wilson's international impact. Prior to joining the National Trust and the Wilson House, Elizabeth worked at the Discovery Inc., a leading global media company. She holds a Master of Arts in International Relations from Rutgers University. Elizabeth Karcher, welcome to the Creative Process. Hello, Mia, thank you so much for having me. So you are the executive director of the Woodrow Wilson House. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the history and mission of the house and your path to becoming a director. Of course. And it's my pleasure to share the story because it's somewhat unusual. I joined the Woodrow Wilson House. It is a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. It is one of the earlier sites of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. It is the home that Woodrow Wilson, he was the 28th president of the United States, he and his second wife, Edith, retired to on uh, inauguration day when he moved out of the White House and he was moving into back to being a citizen of the United States, a retired president. Very few presidents retire to Washington, but Wilson had his first wife died while he was in office and his three daughters had grown up in the White House and now had gone. He'd married Edith Wilson or Edith Bowling Galt Wilson. She was, her husband had died as well. So they met when he was president of the United States and they got married while he was president. So when they were gonna retire from the White House, they didn't really have a place to go back to. Most presidents go back to their home state. And Wilson had come from New Jersey, where he had been president of Princeton University and then governor of New Jersey and then president of the United States. So he wasn't going to be retiring back to Princeton. His wife had been in Washington. She owned a business. And so they retired to uh, a beautiful historic home on S Street in Washington, D.C., it's the neighborhood called Calorama, which means in Greek, beautiful view, Calorama. It's a beautiful neighborhood. And at that time, it had a great view over Washington to down to the river. I mean, you could see that far over to Virginia, in fact. And so they lived in this house and they moved in in 1921. It was Inauguration Day, which at the time was March 4th. That's changed over the last century. But Woodrow Wilson died in 1924 in that house. And Edith Wilson went on on to live in that house for another 37 years and maintained it exactly like it was pretty much when he died in 1924. And she bequeathed the house to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the entire house and all of its contents, as you see, the library, all the formal rooms, everything, in fact, the kitchen, the pots and pans as well. And she wanted the house to share the legacy of Woodrow Wilson. And of course, that legacy has changed over the last, since she bequeathed it in the 60s, and it first opened as a museum. But that is really our mission, is to share the legacy, both the wonderful things and the vision of peace that he had after World War I, and going through the Treaty of Versailles and working for the League of Nations, 
but also sharing the legacy that is one of segregation and racism in his own domestic policies. So we take that story and that history of who he was and what he did and how his wife Edith bequeathed the house to tell the stories in the house as part of our museum tours, exhibitions and events. And looking back, because one thinks oh, it's 100 years ago, and it can sound like a long time, but what he did during his presidency, what was accomplished, you know, the League of Nations, or you could talk about the Federal Reserve or suffrage for women, so many things through his presidency, was that the, the 1918 pandemic as well? I, yeah. And it's just like ticking off all these things. You think, oh, that's a long time ago. But actually, there's some lessons and there's some things we could definitely learn and look back to. Yes. So I have three missions, or these are three pillars of topics of conversation, ideas for exhibitions, and really discussions that we want to bring to life at the house. And those are stories of African Americans, racial conflict, and social justice, as well as women and women's stories and women's suffrage. And then finally, Wilson's international legacy and how he was seen after the Great War. And I think those three topics are topics that resonate today. And so even though they're 100 years old and there are issues that he faced in his uh, presidency, these are topics that are still relevant. I mean, we're still talking about social and racial justice. We're still talking about women being enfranchised and women not just in the vote, but having positions in board of directors and in museums and in companies and corporations across the United States. And then, of course, internationally, no matter who the president is, they're forced to face a world that is global and connected. And the United States is a very big part of that. So those are all the three things that I always look to see. Do our stories resonate, those three topics? Because those are things that are historic, but also things that I find relevant today. And speaking of his international footprint beyond, of course, those very important treaties that really set the, the roadmap for future progressive uh, legislations and this, this path towards uh, world peace. You know, of course, I'm in Paris and we have the, the Avenue <laughs> Woodrow Wilson, but I was in Belgium at the KU Leuven and there was the Central Library there. And I know that Woodrow Wilson and his presidency is well beloved there because the Central Library was completely destroyed during World War I and World War II, and it was under his presidency that was rebuilt, and then I guess destroyed again, and then rebuilt. So they remember him very well and fondly, you know, they really still speaking about it as though it were yesterday. Yes. His international legacy, it's somewhat interesting. Internationally, he's seen and still revered as a great president and a great leader and a visionary, truly a visionary of world peace. I mean, the League of Nations is the precursor to the United Nations. He almost was 20 years ahead of his time in having that vision of how we could collaborate internationally and globally. And yes, it's interesting because he's much more revered outside the United States right now than he is inside the United States. And the question of legacies is really interesting and important. And I think it's something that many of us have been reflecting on in recent years. What are the roles and responsibilities of the presidency? What is it as a symbol? People also took for granted some things that they felt maybe didn't need to be written down because people have their own interpretation of what is a president and what is presidential. Mm -hmm. Well, I will say what 
has been accumulated. It's called the link letters and the, the books of and volumes of correspondence that has been captured on Woodrow Wilson coming up to being president and then president. I think there's 69 volumes that they sit in my office, 69 volumes of correspondence. So all that has been captured and printed and uh, available for people to look back and to reflect on. And you also have this very illuminating lecture series. You have these exhibitions that's ongoing. Tell us about some of those. Sure. I'm smiling because those are somewhat my brainchild that I'm really very happy that we came up with those ideas. They came about because of COVID and it's really remarkable. One of the things that I heard about when COVID first started was that one in three small museums would not survive COVID, that one in 10 museums would not survive COVID. And I thought, that's not going to be me. I had only just started the job. I was only in the role for one year when COVID struck. And I thought that I am not going to let this museum go down on my watch. And so many of the programs that we had and the exhibitions that we had, I really thought long and hard and we came up with the speaker series. We had intended to have those speakers, just one speaker a month come into the house, have some people come as a guest lecturer and listen to that talk. It would only really reach about 35 or 40 people who could be comfortably accommodated in one of the rooms. And we had the lecture series set up and then COVID started. I thought, we can't just let this go. And so I started in June last year with what we called June Noon Zoom. And of course, that was new. Zoom last June was relatively new. And so every Tuesday, we had a speaker on Zoom for an hour at noon. And we had, it grew from 40 participants to over 140 participants. And it was really amazing to see that growth. And that was a growth that we could never have sustained at the Wilson House or accommodated easily at the Wilson House. So our first topic was on suffrage. Of course, then there was the murder of George Floyd in the United States, which really changed our subject and topic to that of race and racism and Wilson's legacy on race and segregation in the United States. And we continued the speaker series. And again, we had somewhere between 80 to 140 people participating, which was really remarkable to go from nothing to this. Now I was calling speakers to invite them to speak and talk about their books or lectures on topics that resonate with us today. I think this last year, we've had over 22 speakers which is much more than we ever would have had, you know, the pandemic. We would never have done that in the house. At the same time, we were also supposed to be hosting a, a suffrage exhibit for the centennial at the Wilson House, which of course it would have been indoors. And at the same time, we came up with this idea for an idea of doing suffrage outside and created an outdoor exhibit, which was remarkable. We had over a thousand visitors a month despite the pandemic, in September, October, and November. We were covered on Voice of America, over 5 million viewers across Russia and Eurasia tuned in to hear and learn about Woodrow Wilson House and our exhibit, Suffrage Outside, in such a monumental year, once again, the 100th anniversary, where women 
really changed the, the fabric and, and the dynamic of what our election year was like in 2020. And so women changing the vote 100 years ago and changing the vote at the presidential election this year. And then of course, having a woman in the White House as a vice president. So it was really a great exhibit and many people got to enjoy it. We've created a virtual tour. It was the only tour of its kind in Washington DC where we were doing an outdoor history exhibit. Uh, that's really wonderful. And as you indicated, yes, female Vice President Kamala Harris. And in some ways, I don't know the whole story because some people speculate due to uh, Woodrow Wilson's stroke that we had in some way a kind of surrogate presidency. I don't know. How would you phrase that? So the way that Edith Wilson would like to be remembered is that she was a steward of the presidency. She was a steward. She would have never did say that she was the first woman president. She really saw herself as a partner and a caregiver and a support to the president. And she never would have said that she was taking charge. That was not in her way and definitely not how she was remembered. Just speaking of President Woodrow Wilson's legacy, I think it would be interesting to bring up a background story about me so actually, I think his family members also made a great contribution to the whole society in the United States at that time. I don't know if you have heard of his cousin, Andrew Wilson. So Andrew actually founded my high school, which is in Strasburg, the outskirts of the downtown Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it was an all-boy boarding school. I received my first abroad American education here as a Chinese international student. I learned about Woodrow Wilson's legacy as the president and founded the League of Nations and being the advocate for signing the Treaties of Versailles. It's great to get to know him as a president who really cared about democracy and promote this in the society at the time because the world is actually in chaos and it's in disorder. So I really appreciate his contribution to the society and also his brothers and family members as well. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you could share that with me. I appreciate that. I also have another question for you. So I know you're an advisor to the board of the Shantan Foundation, which supports sustainability community development in rural Myanmar. Last semester, I took a class, a sustainability class, learning about the military corruption and political corruption in Myanmar. And I was just wondering, how does the foundation help local people here? And how do you get inspired to help those people instead of choosing another place? Oh boy, Horace, I'm going to tell you, this to me is a rather remarkable story. I have two sons. They're now grown, let's say. We took them on a sabbatical summer a number of years ago. And, you know, we traveled around Asia for about 90 days, almost three months. We chose places that we wanted to share with our kids. And one of those places was Myanmar. And I think two weeks were in Myanmar. We pulled on the side of the road. At the time, my children were 11 and 9, 11 and 8, maybe. We pulled over on the side of the road. You know, it's very remote. And we stopped to look at something. And we saw a young boy wearing a longi, which is a long skirt for men that they wear the longi. He's wearing a longi. He's barefoot. He has a traditional shirt and he's walking behind a cow. And the cow is tethered to a grist mill and he's grinding peanuts to make peanut butter for his village. And he's just walking in this circle 
all day leading the cow who's grinding the peanuts. And we stopped. My son had a little rattan ball, which you see all over Asia where they kind of play rattan. And my son and this little boy do not speak the same language, but they do speak soccer and they do speak rattan ball. And they started to play and they're tossing it around and they're having a good time. By that time, my son had already started wearing a longi as well. So he's holding his longi up and they're kicking the ball. And they had a nice interlude for 10 or 15 minutes while we, the grownups were doing something, looking at something. And we got back in the car and that boy went back to walking behind a cow, an ox for the rest of the afternoon. And my son got into a car with us to see the rest of Asia. And I just thought it was so poignant that there are two young boys, same age, same interest, and yet they're living these extraordinarily different lives. This one boy is living almost in the stone age where his whole afternoon is gonna be spent in behind a cow. And my son has the opportunity to see the world and to learn different languages and to travel. So fast forward, I took a picture that day of those two boys just to remind me of that afternoon. And fast forward, we moved to Washington. I meet someone who knows someone about Myanmar and we start talking. There are not many Americans who had been to Myanmar and learned about Shanta and what the foundations were and that they go into the villages of the Shan people. That's why Shan, Shanta, the Shan people where the military is not interested in them. The, no one's interested in them. They are in the most remote hills with very little services. They have formal education to the third grade. It is really the stone age. And my husband and I decided we would get involved. We had seen that and we knew that and we knew that life and we knew that were it not for people like us, they are forgotten. These people are truly forgotten. And we chose to put some money into Shanta and we've been donating every year. We support a village. The model of how Shanta works is really fascinating in terms of self-sustaining and sustainability. And it was really the model that they use that attracted us to making the donation. It's not really like we're donating. It's really truly an investment. The village needs to choose how they're going to use their money, what they'll invest in. My husband and I went back to Myanmar on a trip to the villages, into the villages where we lived in the huts and used a hole in the ground for the bathroom. I mean, it was really very remote. We lived there for two weeks, about three or four years ago. And we got to see how our investment was made. And it was really remarkable to see the progress in the villages. We also created and supported a school. We support students every year. And now our students have grown up and some of them are going off to college, which is rather remarkable because these are students, they come from the village. They never would have had that opportunity were it not for us helping those students go to school. In terms of the corruption in Myanmar and flawed leadership, which I can appreciate as representing the Woodrow Wilson House, I understand that by no fault of the Shan people that they're caught in the crossfires of democracy. And so we continue to support them and that cause, despite what's going on in the country. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in for this podcast for the creative process. I'm Horace Moe, an undergraduate environmental student at the University of Michigan, as well as the environmental sustainability podcaster here 
at the creative process. It was the best experience of helping young people in Myanmar. Strikes a chord with me, because it not only makes me realize how privileged I am in my current life, but also motivates me to follow her footsteps by helping kids in need around the world. Not just kids who lack the opportunity to go to school, but the ones that also need healthcare, healthy food, clean water, and so on. As an aspiring sustainability steward. I have read a bunch of articles about families living by dump sites, toxic industries, or polluted neighborhoods. It's tough for them to relocate to another place, mainly due to poverty and household issues. Thus, I also want to find ways, such as fundraising, campaigns, or donation, to provide resources to improve their living conditions as much as possible. Being the co-host for this interview with Elizabeth. I was grateful to hear her past experience with young people, and I believe that there are still a lot of underrepresented people out there that need attention from the public. I hope I can contribute to society, like Elizabeth did, to help those people raise their voices and have opportunities to achieve success in the future. So, Elizabeth, I thank you for sharing your stories with our podcast listeners. That's a wonderful story and commitment. And as you said, caught in the crossfires of democracy. So I'm just wondering what Woodrow Wilson's approach, or what your own beliefs are about how we can better protect our democracy, which we see is fragile. That is really interesting, and I mean, I have my own personal views. I have also my views that I share in terms of the Wilson House, and I have to say, one of the ways that I think we can protect the democracy is to continue the conversation about racial and social justice, whether it's in Myanmar or in Paris or in Washington D.C. I think civilization is ripe for that conversation, and I think, especially in the United States, in museums and the museum world, it's important to have that as one of the forefronts, something that we address and we're very open about, and we confront that history head on. And that's how we approach what we do at the Wilson House. I truly do think that is a step to creating a better place. I think the crossfires of democracy. Some of it happens because. We're not educated about facts of what really happened, and so some of these speaker series discussions are really about sharing facts and helping educate grown people like myself who never learned things in some of these topics when I was in grade school. And I think, why did I learn that? How come I didn't know that? And so, even as an adult, even at my age, learning something new that takes me one step closer to understanding a more perfect union. Exactly. I think that it's interesting how many people aren't completely versed in the Constitution, and it shouldn't be difficult. I did an interview with the Jeffrey Rosen at the National Constitution Center that does so much to really make that an immersive experience as well. And I just think it's so exciting learning about the Constitution, learning about history, and. Once you learn about it, then it makes you really appreciate, you know, what it is that we have with our ability to vote and how it opens up this whole world. So I just really want to thank you for what you do through your museum, which is also this kind of apolitical space that welcomes all. 
Yes, thank you, thank you. It's interesting with the constitution, I carry a constitution around a little mini version in my pocketbook to remind me. I understand that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did the same, but I carry it because for instance, the first amendment, I'm struck that it's not really equal for everyone. And the first amendment isn't just about free speech, but there are different components to it. And if we have the right to gather but no one's watching us gather and no one covers us in the news about gathering, then does it really matter that we have the right to gather? And so when I think about the First Amendment and the Constitution, I think it was created for all, and yet we don't all have the same level of embracing and celebrating it as everyone else, as other people, I should say. I think that people are treated as others and outsiders to the constitution and the amendments. And I think that that's something we should explore. And it ties to something that I'm fascinated with, which also is a historical fact about Wilson's administration and something that we face today, which is the concept of propaganda and fake news. I find that fascinating to be able to talk about something that the word propaganda and the concept of propaganda started in World War One. the word propaganda and using it to propagate ideas and how that changes to be fake news. And what's that line between having the right to say things versus an obligation to really be reporting on truth. So long story short, I carry the constitution <laughs> to remind myself of the freedoms that I have and that not everyone can express them at the same level that I feel I can. Yes, and certainly technology and the changes in the evolution of journalism have opened up many possibilities, but also challenges as well. You know, issues of free speech are forefront of my mind, too, because how far do you take that? And where's the line between free speech and hate speech or mm -hmm. propaganda? It's a responsibility we have to take seriously. And I know that that's also been a subject and the issue of propaganda of your talk series that you're discussing. Yes, absolutely. That's what started some of the thoughts that they're ruminating. And I'm, I'm thinking of how we would put on an exhibit to share that. And, and it's a question of what do people want to see? And then what do people want to learn? And how we can make this educational, but also really super engaging. Well, that's interesting. Maybe it's something we discussed down the line, because we do work with, I think it's almost 80 universities, many of them in America, but also international, and as you see, international students and artists and many institutions. So, I mean, we would love to maybe seek creative academic responses, that idea of what's the constitution. In fact, some poets have even written some pieces for us, like we the people, I the people, she the people, and we shared them in our podcasts. So it's something I would love to discuss, or I could at least spread the word if that's something that's interesting for you. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to collaborate on that. Yes, it's really exciting. And I do find that when people get engaged with this political process and they feel they, they're part of it, they can create something. You know, it's great on uh, election day, but it's a year round, isn't it? And when you see how it's really part of your life, that's another thing I was discussing with Jeffrey Rosen, is that when you really understand it's not a piece, an abstract or a piece of paper, this is something that you use in your life. These are questions that are important and that become so fascinating. I absolutely support that. And I think not everyone feels those same right here in America, right outside my door. Not everyone feels that those they are allowed those same rights. And that's part of the discussion. 
Well, yeah, we have to learn to vocalize. And the other thing is because there's powerful lobbies or there's others exercise that right a little bit more forcefully, but we do have access to it. So I think it's really important what you do. It it helps remind people that these are living documents Mm -hmm. and the president is at our service. It's very fascinating questions. And you discussed the Woodrow Wilson legacy. What did he feel were his important contributions? to society and his mission. I mean, you said that there's so many volumes. 69 volumes, I believe, in the link letters. Well, that's an interesting question, what he would have thought. I mean, I believe his true vision was for world peace. And in some ways, it's a very Western approach because he's looking at it from uh, the, the stand of the big four of how they would manage this vision of world peace. Now, 100 years out, you look at it, you think that that's somewhat of a colonial approach to it. But I shouldn't say somewhat. It's a colonial approach <laughs> to world peace. But what I think is interesting is that some of the conflicts that we have today are conflicts that are a result of what happened, the carving up of the world and in a colonial way of the big four and their piece of the pie and the struggles that the smaller countries are still having today as a result of how they were carved up at the end of World War I. So I think of the Arab Spring, for instance, and I think that there was when you look at the letters and you read the history of Wilson and the Treaty of Versailles and deciding like who's Syria going to or who's Egypt going to, that's part of where a hundred years hence you have issues where an Arab Spring will emerge, where there's conflict that has not totally been resolved. What would he want to be remembered for? Well, I can tell you what Edith would like him to be remembered for. And that, of course, is the League of Nations contributing to being one of the first president to be in Europe during his presidency to be helping negotiate at the Treaty of Versailles, taking a real meeting kings and the pope and creating this whole sense of who the United States really is, putting us on the center stage as a country and as a a power. And I think that that's something that she would have liked to have seen. And that's why she's created the Woodrow Wilson House and made this a site and donated to the National Trust. You raise an interesting question. And I always wonder when I see a president enter office and then I see him thus far leave and I remember the visions and the promises and I believe sincere and humanitarian visions that they have going in. And then there are these political forces and there are these compromises and these conversations that go on beyond closed doors that we never are privy to. And I always wonder how much did they even have to compromise their own vision, even though we feel that that's such a powerful role at the same time, their service to other powerful forces. Oh, absolutely. I think Wilson would say he completely compromised. And, you know, the hardest thing for him was that the League of Nations was not accepted in his own country and not ratified in his own country. I mean, that was not a success for him at all. Absolutely. And I think after he'd had a stroke, that there just wasn't the energy to be continuing to lobby for that. And as you said, the political discussions and the negotiations, he didn't have it in him to be negotiating for that after the stroke. Yes, and I believe Horace had some questions surrounding curation and management of collections. Of course. Yeah, I was just wondering how historic artworks and the collections at Woodrow Wilson House get maintained throughout years because it's been such a long time. If I do not get that strong, I think there are over 8,000 artworks here. 
So I'm just curious about the process. If this is confidential that you don't want to share with the public, that's fine. No, no, we have over eight thousand four hundred pieces in our collection. As I said, Edith, when she bequeathed the house to the National Trust, she bequeathed everything, and so everything you see here in the background, everything is tagged with the National Trust number. So we have it all. It's all cataloged. We have a collections data management system. Many of our items are asked to go on loan, and so we send. Them off to different parts of the world. In fact, we've got a beautiful portrait that was done by an American artist who's married to an Armenian named Pushman, and this is a beautiful portrait called L'Espérance. And during COVID, it was the American ambassador to Armenia's residence in Yerevan. And I share that because we've got items that go on all over the world, including Yerevan. As we said, that item traveled furthest and more than anybody else probably combined during COVID. And we have a baseball which was signed by King George V on the day the war stopped in London. It was actually United States Independence Day, July 4th, and it was an exhibition baseball game between the U.S. Army team and the U.S. Navy team. And King George V was there, although he. Thought he was going to throw out the first pitch, which was something that they started to do at that time because of security. He couldn't throw it out, but he did sign it, George V, and he held on to it, asked to have it come back. The ball was pitched, but he did not pitch it. And then it came back, and he delivered it to Woodrow Wilson. He knew Wilson was a big fan of baseball. That baseball is our most highly requested item to go on an exhibit. And I share that I think that that baseball is so much more than just a baseball, and it goes back to our conversation about America and the difference between Wilson and how he would want to be remembered. And one of the things is that that day in London, it was United States independence from England, and it's not where the king comes to watch an exhibition baseball game during World War One, but of the United States playing our exhibition baseball game. Now, baseball is a quintessential American sport. No Brits are playing baseball, and yet on our Independence Day, the King comes to watch that game with his family, as well as many, many Londoners. And I like to think that that is really a turning point in American history, where it's not just we're in, invited to part and pleaded with to come engage in World War One, and we become a social and economic and political and, and diplomatic. Player in the world, but we also now become a player in our culture. We are exporting our culture for the first time. That's really remarkable. That that one baseball, which we have, which now goes on exhibit, you know, goes on tour, really symbolizes something that's very different from anything else, and it's not political. It's not social, economic. It is culture, and. As you know, in Paris, American culture is really present, and I like to think it stems back to that day where we've got the king watching an American pastime in London. Yes, cultural diplomacy and soft power—it's really、uh, very interesting and important. And I would love to see more of that kind of diplomacy than. The other that we are called upon to rely upon, and so I think as you think about, and I don't know if you could speak to what Woodrow Wilson's thoughts might be on this, as we think about the future and the kind of world we want to live in, it's heavy in our minds. The kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. There's so many 
things that we might change and improve. So many systems, education, law, a special interest of ours here is uh, global warming, of course, inequality, social justice, world peace, many of these interests that are important for the Woodrow Wilson House. So I was just wondering, what are ways we might improve our current systems to address these issues? So I can't say what Woodrow Wilson would have wanted. I don't know. I can read, I do the research, but I would never dare to say what Woodrow Wilson would have wanted beyond knowing that he wanted you know, a vision of world peace through the League of Nations. But I do know what I would like to see and what my staff would like to see and how we go about approaching that. And that is educating our youth and educating even our more mature youth like myself. When we have discussions where we're talking about conversations that we didn't know about before or educating our youth to come in and learn about social and racial justice at the Wilson House. We host a scholars program each semester since I started. And I started actually in true force during COVID last summer. A few students had sent emails to me saying, are you going to do a scholars program? Are you gonna do internships or volunteer or anything? And I started to respond to them and I found out that many people had all of their things canceled and weren't even doing it remotely. And so there's this little gap of students that would have had internships and programs last summer and they didn't get to do anything. So I said, I'll take on four scholars and I'll start creating a program and we'll do it remotely. And I had such satisfaction working with these students. It was amazing. They helped me on the speaker series. They helped me on the Suffrage Outside exhibit. They were really inspirational. And our scholars program has since grown. In the fall, we had eight students. In the spring, we had seven students. And now this summer, we have seven students. And I think in terms of what I'd like to see for them is I listen to them. We are part of the interview process. They only have to answer three questions. And that is, why the Woodrow Wilson House? What do you want to learn at the Woodrow Wilson House? And most importantly for me, what are you going to teach me at the Woodrow Wilson House? And it's remarkable what they teach me. You know, I'm really passionate about those students and I probably spend a lot more time on them than I should. <laughs> but I really enjoyed that. I really enjoy working with them. Love hearing their ideas. And every one of them teaches me something that I just didn't know. It's fascinating. Well, that's so important in terms of legacy, because it's not for what we do and what we remember, but it's how we're remembered in future generations and what they teach us too, because they can see it all with fresh eyes. I've certainly learned and grown so much with our participating students, and I love their collaboration too. Personally, for our own project, it would not be the same without students. It would just be experts and leaders and creative thinkers and museum directors such as yourself, but there would be no audience and no purpose for it. I feel it's important that we're going to be passing this baton to them. And, you know, if you've ever done relay races, it's really important to know the person behind you that you're passing the baton to and that you connect with them. Otherwise, you're going to drop the baton. And I feel it's really important for me to know what those students want and are looking for. And as I said, why the Wilson House? What do you want to learn? And then what are you going to teach me? I feel very strongly about that 
baton that I connect and listen to them so that they can carry this forward. As we started the conversation, one in three small museums will not survive COVID, and that would not be the Wilson House. But I think also museums on the whole might not survive. And I think in order for museums to survive and remain cultural institutions is to listen to the next generation and hear what they want, what they want to learn, what they want to understand, and how we can teach them, how we can support them. Yes. And so you've said what you've learned from them, those scholars in your program, quite humbly. And you yourself, what were some important lessons that you had learned from teachers, mentors, in your maybe family members that really helped you sustain and forge your career and your role as executive director of the Woodrow Wilson? Oh, gosh. Thank you for asking that question. Because I come from a very small town, factory, hardworking, kind of hard scrabble town where in New Jersey, most people when graduated would go to work in the factories. And that's fine. Working is great. No matter what you do, working is great. And my grandfather would say, work brings dignity to life. And I live by that. I feel that having a job and no matter what you do, but making a contribution really brings dignity. And one of the things I say to any employee that I've ever had, I always ask them, so who do you think you're working for? And they'll say, oh, I'm working for you, or I'm working for the National Trust, or I'm working for, you know, my family. And I say, no, you're actually working for yourself. You're working for your own shingle, for your own name, and for your own reputation, and for your dignity. And so I feel very strongly, it was my grandfather that said that, and it resonates with me today. Yes, it's so true. And I can see that you really have a passion for your work. And I really feel a mission in life is that when you can turn your work into such a pleasure and a passion that it doesn't feel like work, then you've really succeeded on a very important level in life. I certainly get that from you, Elizabeth. And so what you've done, your life's work and celebrating the legacy of Woodrow Wilson, I want to thank you, Elizabeth Karcher and Woodrow Wilson House for illuminating the legacy of Woodrow Wilson and the role and responsibilities of the presidency and for helping us understand the laws, ideas, and norms that shape our country, culture, and society. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Wonderful to meet you. And I thank you both, Horace and Mia. Really appreciate it. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Horace Moe. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Antholis and performed by the Athenian Trail. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review. Just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.